0: I'm a perfectionist it's not fun it makes life harder than it should be than it needs to be especially as a creative I scrutinize everything that I do everything I try and put out there it makes doing this podcast uh, a bit agonizing for me because I uh, I belabor each point I'm trying to make just as I do as a writer I think of podcasting as writing. I'm speaking right now in an introductory paragraph. It had a thesis statement at the beginning, and I'm supporting that thesis now with this kind of sentence. I choose to podcast because it is a little more free-flowing and enjoyable than writing. And I think there is something about the conversational element that I really enjoy. Um, And I'll reiterate here that I really do want to start having conversations, especially on a topic like I'm going to tackle today. It would be easier to bounce these ideas off of someone and structure it less like an essay and more like a dialogue. So I've recorded this episode a few times. I even did one like this last week or two on video, and I just haven't been satisfied with it because I'm just not quite hitting my target of what I'm going for, and I still might uh, struggle today recording this, but I want to get it out there. I just want to let my ideas exist out there, even if they're a bit scrambled and jumbled and loose. I think that it's important to just talk these things through a bit and um, hopefully get you into my headspace with me on these topics. And I think these topics today might help explain my difficulties and frustrations with my tendencies for perfectionism and procrastination and creative output and work in general. Because my work is so mental, it, it doesn't help when I have all this other uh, jumbled input from the world in my head. It makes things very hard to sort out. But my goal, my purpose, really, is to sort out that stuff and to give some amount of structure, whether it's artistic or uh, philosophical, to the things that we're all experiencing. And I'm referring now to just cultural politics, I guess, broadly speaking, but more like socio-cultural studies. And I'm going to analyze... In particular, today, the way that narratives are built, especially by the media, and how conspiracy theories grow from that. And I'm putting all this under this one headline, the title of this episode Fake News. What's real? What can we trust? And when we read or hear about anything, how much does it affect us and our? state of being, our consciousness, whether it be about coronavirus or the presidential election or, you know, dangerous uprisings throughout the world or uh, even, I don't know, stuff within our own personal spheres like career choices or love interests. How do you know what to make of things? When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests.
1: That's not by accident. That's a design technique.
0: That's from the trailer for a film on Netflix right now, a great one that I recommend called The Social Dilemma. And it deconstructs the current zeitgeist we're living in as defined by our social media. But it's not just social media, and social media is a big topic to unpack. It's a Truman Show effect, first and foremost. We're, we're all quite atomized, which is to say that our experiences in the world are so individualized and subjective that we're actually disconnected from society and from one another. There was a time in the past when news, for instance, was read by one anchor person on TV to the whole mass audience. A Walter Cronkite figure sort of uh, coalesced and um, brought everyone together into one shared experience of truth. And nowadays, we have so many different news media outlets tailored to each political persuasion but even beyond that because of Facebook especially but also Google and others our personal news feed is tailored so specifically to each of us that we don't even know we don't even share a common sense of truth anymore and this is where fake news comes in as such a danger because we read everything as if it's news, as if it's still somebody like Walter Cronkite reading us the way it is. Let's listen to more of this trailer. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest.
1: Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of
0: that coin. Being spied on is an invasion of our privacy, and as a Western culture, we have a really strong sense of privacy as a value. I would say it's overinflated. I think uh, we don't quite understand what it means to have privacy or to be a private person. Let me discuss that for a moment before returning to the film. I, I think it's it's understandable that, especially in a culture like... Europe, Central Europe, uh, where I'm living in Berlin, right at the divide of East and West, there is this sort of paranoia, or suspicion at least, that antagonistic forces are um, spying on you, out to get you in some way, or that you become vulnerable if you don't maintain your privacy. And I think privacy means two things here. It means dignity, and it also means Uh, anonymity just a quick history lesson after nazi germany was defeated in world war ii in 1945 the soviets took over east germany and implemented a regime Uh, the stasi was this secret service that really did spy on people and monitored phone calls for instance bugged offices and really uh, overtly controlled the populace through intimidation tactics and would actually punish people with real things like prison if you were suspected of perhaps uh, treason or crimes against the state, stuff like that. Broad, difficult things to prove, things that could be construed based on your words or your behaviors in your own privacy. Simultaneously, or not simultaneously, but that was coming off of the concentration camps the extermination of jews and gypsies and the like and that was obviously this gross violation of human dignity and as such rules for photographers for instance are stricter in germany than they are in somewhere like the u.s um there's more of a right to dignity by the subject of a photograph than there is the right of expression by the artist or creator taking the picture And that makes sense, given the history. But we get a little confused and our priorities start to muddle when we put this premium on a sense of privacy. And we're not even consistent, are we? For instance, Germans might be suspicious of giving up data. There's a lot of data privacy laws, in effect, in the EU, which is great. And it makes sense. But that also protects malicious actors like terrorists, like child pornographer dealers, like sex traffickers who can hide behind that kind of privacy, too. Now, I'm not saying that I prefer an authoritative society in order to maintain safety and clamp down on that kind of crime, but it is a balancing act. And I think a lot of us lose the plot when we prioritize something like our privacy in some sectors, like, let's say, Google Maps Street View which is largely grayed out throughout Germany, but not others. For instance, we have a Gmail account in which we give Google access to all of our emails. And as such, Google knows basically everything about us. Uh, Germans tend to change their name on Facebook. Again, it makes sense given the history. But Facebook still knows everything about your online activity, what your interests are, and it might tailor your news feed to you. And that can be good. It can be kind of cool when my Instagram shows me ads for cameras and loungewear for instance I don't need to see nail polish so I kind of like that these big tech companies know me and give me what I might want I have an understanding about that and I'm not freaked out by it but perhaps there is a line that is crossed by this kind of big data
1: Credit card swipes, web searches, locations, likes. They're all collected in real time into a trillion dollar a year industry. The real game changer was Cambridge Analytica. They worked for the Trump campaign and for the Brexit campaign. They started using information warfare. Cambridge Analytica claimed to have 5,000 data points on every American voter.
0: This is now a different trailer for another Netflix doc called The Great Hack, which I also highly recommend. It's a little more specific toward the topics I'm currently discussing. Social ne- uh, Social Dilemma goes more into our personal psychologies and the dangers of our interactions broadly, like as a society. Whereas The Great Hack goes more into the nefarious, more conspiratorial angles of how big data is wreaking havoc around the world. So... I'm trying to talk, to talk about both of these ideas at once because I think it's important to coalesce these ideas into a takeaway. And I'll tell you what my thesis is of this podcast now. It's very important. It is crucial to our prosperity and flourishing as a culture and species that we get smarter and more careful about the information we consume that is the takeaway here we have to be more scrutinizing of what we observe we have to be extremely careful about the messaging and the narratives that are floating in our worlds
1: the reason why google facebook are the most powerful companies in the world is because last year data surpassed oil in value data is the most valuable asset on earth targeted those whose minds we thought we could change until they saw the world the way we wanted them to. I do know that their targeting tool
0: was considered a weapon. There is a possibility that the American public had been experimented
1: on. This is becoming a criminal matter. When people see the extent of the surveillance, I think they're going to be shocked.
0: I want to highlight one of those sentences earlier in that clip. Weaponizing data targets the vulnerable. My point in this podcast is to be less vulnerable, to train your mind to be suspicious and discerning in what you see and hear. Psychological operations, PSYOPs, is the formalized way of targeting minds, of aiming for hearts and minds with any narrative or ideology in order to fool you and win you over to convince you of something or to brainwash you in stronger language. We can't stop that, but we can train our minds to be stronger. I think conspiracy theories are an interesting way to further discuss this. So let's talk about conspiracy and theories around conspiracies. So this term has a bad rap, a negative connotation. We might think of like the flat earth society, people that think the earth is flat, uh, people that believe lizard people are running the world from underground. People that wear tin hats so that radio waves don't corrupt their brain or something like this. These are all fringe and ridiculous beliefs. Less fringe uh, and less ridiculous but still on that edge would be something like anti-vaxxers who refuse to take vaccination because they have uh, perhaps viable uh, skepticism for The medical industry, for instance. Um, And maybe between those you have something like the quite zany idea of Pizzagate, which is this weird conspiratorial idea that Hillary Clinton and her cadre were running a child sex trafficking ring from Washington, D.C. pizzerias. Where the hell would an idea like that come from? Well... If you just kind of think broadly and not too deep about buzzwords and ideas floating in society like corrupt politicians, like um, pedophile rings or sex trafficking circles, like the uber rich, the powerful people that get away with such things, the, um, you know, Panama Papers, uh, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, especially, who I'll focus on later in another topic. But he fits here as this kind of um, legitimizing idea that the rich and powerful do a lot of shady shit and they get away with it. Jeffrey Epstein palled around with Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. So you have that Clinton idea. Uh, Hillary Clinton surely has met Jeffrey Epstein in some way. And so you kind of take bits and pieces of reality and you mash them together in something that is kind of believable to a certain kind of person, a person with an open mind toward the ridiculous or the far-fetched. And to have an open mind is not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe open mind is the wrong way to put it, perhaps more like a conspiratorial mind or rather a mind hunting for answers, a mind ready to be fertilized by an explanation to why the world is the way it is whose fault is this who can I blame this on we all have a shared sense that something is wrong and it's true there's actually a lot of things wrong and we all pick our poisons our our certain pet interests our causes that we're fighting and corruption is such a big problem everywhere to varying degrees that It makes a lot of sense that a lot of conspiracy theories revolve around our our conceptions of corruption
1: this is about the integrity of our democracy these platforms which were created to connect us have now been weaponized it's impossible to know what is what because nothing is what it seems
0: great hack Netflix that last point is crucial here what is what it is Sam Harris just did a podcast about a new developing technology that essentially fabricates photorealistic imagery from AI or computer imaging It's really cool from a creative standpoint. It's very interesting. And same with audio. But the danger here is that soon, when we see a news clip of a prominent figure saying something, it might be fake. We might not be able to tell the difference between something that is actual, like what's in front of our eyes, and what is completely fabricated from ones and zeros. (sighs) We're already there with text. Satire, which I love. The Onion is a defining publication in my life. Satire is sometimes indistinguishable from reality. There's a subreddit called 8 Onion," full of examples where people, largely on Facebook but anywhere, fall for it and don't understand that what they're reading is a joke. Because life is a joke. The world is totally absurd. And... If something says uh, something like, Rudy Giuliani arrives in Ukraine to look for more votes. (laughs) Somebody on Facebook that sees that post actually says, and how can Ukrainians vote in our election? (laughs) So that's just the first hit today that I'm looking at at the Onion on Reddit. That comes from a site called the Borowitz Report. Which taglines, not the news. It literally says it's not the news in the headline, and yet people still fall for it. Because why? Because there's a narrative out there that our voting system is corrupted, which might be true. And you can be of either political direction to suspect that, right? The 2000 election that Al Gore lost to George Bush by way of a Supreme Court's decision is the most corrupt event in my lifetime and changed the course of history for the worse, all because Florida was such a mess in terms of its voting and Election Day procedures, the governor at the time being George Bush's brother, his dad having connections to the Supreme Court and understanding the ways to game the legal system. So it's really easy to start with a belief that the election process is flawed there's there's talk about the electoral college being an unfair unbalanced system on its own so when you take something like a seed of doubt like that it's really easy to extrapolate that uh you know any th- specific thing like in this case that rudy giuliani who's right now the lawyer and pal of donald trump is going to ukraine which is a word that we hear about from, you know, Hunter Biden and, um, you know, Russian hackers and looking for more votes, which is an idea that perhaps Trump has put out there in his tweets that the Democrats are just finding votes everywhere. So you have all these kind of ideas floating in the ether, right? They're out there and they have a, a link to reality. There's a semblance of truth You know, Donald Trump can say something like they are finding Biden votes all over the place in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. So bad for our country. Trump tweeted that on November 4th and he's playing into a narrative he has been building up all along, which is that mail-in ballots can be fraudulent and faked and that the Democrats will steal the election with all this. He's planting that in fertile soil of our suspicion of the system being corrupted. But it's fake news, isn't it? The fact is that these states, having received record numbers of mail-in votes, they tally their votes differently. Most of them don't tally them before election day. They wait until election day, they get all of their in-person votes, and then they start literally counting through and tabulating the mail-in votes. They're not making them up, they're not discounting them unless they have a reason to discount them. They are counting the votes that were cast. They're not making up new votes. But it's easy to obfuscate that idea into a paranoid delusion, like the Democrats are just picking up random pieces of paper and counting them. Right? And that also could happen. There is a a possibility in the world, in the universe, that... Some random votes came in too late, or maybe some votes weren't filled out properly. Maybe the signatures didn't match. You know, the rules to counting a vote are kind of labyrinthine on their own. So this idea that Trump is running with has some basis in reality, but it's fake news. It's misleading. It's intentionally misleading that the Democrats are conjuring up Random votes out of nowhere, counting dead people, getting votes from Ukraine, (laughs) which is so absurd. And yet, if you are a Trump supporter and you're prone to suspecting that the Dems are corrupt and might tamper with the election, this might actually pass as real news. And in the realm of satire, it's okay, right? Like, this is a joke, and I think it's really funny. Giuliani arrives in Ukraine to look for more votes. That's really funny. But it's less funny when you're looking at something quite serious. Like, for instance, COVID. I have a friend who I was just texting with in, in the States, in Denver, who was remarking how alarming it is that coronavirus cases are up sevenfold compared to the spring. So that was a headline he read in a mainstream paper. And my antenna went up because I was a little suspicious of the wording of that statement and I looked it up and it's probably true that cases are up sevenfold compared to the spring but first of all how is it being measured what were our measurement techniques in the spring when we knew less how are we counting these things and second of all cases is the operative word there We care about deaths. We care about sickness. We care about actual damage to society. Having an asymptomatic case is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't understand enough about um, virology and herd immunity and all these different things. That's not the point here. I don't have an agenda exactly. But to say that we have to be skeptical of the news we're reading, the editor of that headline intentionally wants to alarm people, get them on their toes, perhaps he's pushing an agenda that more people need to be safe and wear masks. Okay, it's an understandable agenda to push. But framing that headline that way is building a narrative that my friend is susceptible to. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's a narrative he should hear. Maybe another editor could write that headline, despite A spike in cases, death rate remains low. You could take the same facts and data points and make that headline out of it. And quickly relating to that point, I started this podcast talking about my perfectionism. Editors must know what they're doing. Writers scrutinize their words that they're using and editors put out into the public um, key phrases that they've thought about. So I, for one do suspect an agenda because i know that anyone with this kind of work is scrutinizing their work and putting it out there intentionally why would you put out something ambiguous or misleading intentionally and it kind of goes back to something i heard earlier in the trump era something like when trump speaks liberals take him literally and conservatives take him figuratively like with building a wall Liberals freak out that he really wants to spend billions building a wall with Mexico. And Republicans hear more like the spirit of isolationism and that the technical details of the words matter less. And I think that's an interesting point in terms of studying narrative. And it plays into what Trump tweets regarding the election. Like he doesn't outright necessarily say specific things to be taken literally, but he has a point to be made to be suspicious of the electoral system and such. Let's get back to the coronavirus and the different narratives and beliefs around it. You have a certain group of people, especially, let's say, the biker gangs in Sturgis, Dakotas, spreading this disease because they think the whole thing is a hoax. Why do they think it's a hoax? Where does that idea come from? Well, the same reason you might think vaccinations are a hoax. The same reason you might think that... um, mind control is a possibility in the world that the media has a leftist bias that you can't trust anything you hear and i think that that's legitimate and if you push that all the way to a certain conclusion or beyond you know reason you'll get to a conclusion like coronavirus is fake news (sighs) they're not necessarily wrong to have doubt about the messaging they hear And you can blame media for unclear and biased messaging, for losing our trust. It's a failure in leadership, and it's a failure in reporting. You know, I'm recording this in my apartment in Berlin. I haven't left the house in two days. It's hard to socialize. Things are closed. There's no bars. Restaurants are takeout only now. This is lockdown. That's the times we're living in. And it's really easy for someone like me to start wondering, A, this is not healthy psychologically for me. B, it's likely unhealthy for society at large. C, is there some nefarious function here that's putting us like this, like placating us with our devices and our vices, our habits in Our own little bubbles, you know, um, alienating us from one another, taking away all of our shared experiences, etc. There's something like a feeling of prison, imprisonment. And that's going far, obviously, but it's not hard to see the relationship there, the similarities. And I think it's really natural to push back against that, to maybe challenge that, to wonder why that's the case, what's going on here. So coronavirus doubters, skeptics, conspiracy theorists, they're easy to mock to some degree. They're, they're mocked on social media by moral leftists who wag their fingers for not wearing masks correctly, etc. That's how it's politicized. Um, so be it. I, I don't really want to comment too much more on that. I have sympathies for both sides. Uh, I think it's really important to practice personal responsibility for the sake of society, but also to still leave room for individual independent thinking and behavior. You can't control everything. Let's look at a different example of conspiratorial thinking, but from the left. I think a really prominent example from the Trump era is related to the film The Great Hack, and that would be Russian collusion. There's something called the Mueller Reports. In the States, where this special investigation by Robert Mueller, uh, he was investigating whether or not Trump conspired with Vladimir Putin or the Russian government or some other force in order to basically steal the 2016 election. Now, where would that idea come from? It's a totally legitimate thing in the sense that there is various tampering with Uh, the American populace, as The Great Hack covers. There are forces out there putting out fake news. There is a legitimate reason to suspect that Russians, broadly speaking, corrupted the electoral process through psychological operations, psyops. And we know that Donald Trump is like, chummy with Vladimir Putin we know that there's this cold war effect out there from the past you know the previous generation or decade or century rather we know all that kind of stuff is out there so when you put all that together it might make sense that Democrats are suspicious of this topic and pursue it legally but they're wrong the Mueller report uh, concluded that there was no direct proof that Donald Trump knew what was going on, that he helped rig the election. There's just no proof of it. And someone like Rachel Maddow, preeminent uh, or prominent news anchor on MSNBC, the left-wing version of Fox News, she made a whole career in getting viewers of talking this up, of building this narrative that Donald Trump had stolen the election and that uh We had every reason to doubt the legitimacy of it because we wanted to believe that. It was important for people on the left to believe that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president. Not my president, we all like to say, depending on what year it is and what side we're on. So it's hard to separate always conspiracy theories from reality because conspiracies do happen. We know that Enron is a good example on the corporate malfeasance level. You have something like um, Volkswagen or a medical company um, knowing that its drugs are dangerous and then taking them out of the Western market and putting them in the Sub-Saharan African market, for instance, like these are conspiracies. These are literally groups of people conspiring to do something uh, under the watchful public eye and to get away with something for profit or for some other motive. We know that that happens. So to have a theory that it's happening elsewhere is not crazy. It's not crazy to think that a Republican machine killed John F. Kennedy in the 60s. It might be a little more crazy to think that the moon landing in the 60s was faked, but there's legitimate reason to think it. There's reasonable suspicion that the Soviet Union was ahead of us in the space race and that we faked it for patriotic reasons. There's enough weird phenomena out there like the lack of wind the lack of shadows stanley kubrick's whatever all these kind of things that conspiratorial minds put together i'll reference jonathan Haidt again here the psychologist we have predilections we have impulses and biases and directions that we favor and when presented with new information we either ask ourselves must i believe this it's challenging my core values or intuitions. So must I believe it? Is the evidence so strong that I must? Or if we're susceptible in a direction and the evidence isn't even very strong, we ask ourselves, may I believe it? Can I believe it? Is there just a little bit that I can hold on to and use to justify my feeling? And that's a really important thing to realize with conspiracy theories and narratives. We seek out the supporting evidence for our predetermined side, and this is what we have to analyze deeper. Why do we have these predetermined sides in the first place? But given the fact that we have these inclinations and proclivities, is that really the problem? Or is it more a problem of sorting out information around us? I think it makes sense to be suspicious of something like nine eleven or the rise of Radical, religious ideologies. These kind of things deserve suspicion and interest. The danger is in the dissemination of information and the way that these narratives are constructed or ridiculed. So you have an accumulation of evidence for something like 9-11, jet fuel, not melting steel beams, Building 7 coming down. You have all this kind of evidence and you have a narrative uh, at the end of that uh, research, which is that, quote, Bush did nine eleven, And it's a pretty funny meme, in my opinion. I like that one. Uh, I think it's a fun conspiracy theory. Um, I can put it in the category of uh, almost satire, because it's, it's like an amusement at this point, which might itself be like a coping mechanism to deal with that tragedy now that we're, what is it, almost 20 years away. The interest to me is in the way that uh, certain power structures like mass media or thought leaders, the intelligentsia, uh, influencers, the way that people play with this kind of information, mocking it outright, uh, putting it outside the Overton window. The Overton window is this idea that within society there are certain topics that are allowed to be discussed and that's the window of polite discourse for instance there are certain beliefs or stances on any certain topic that are within reason and then there are those kind of ideas that are outside of the Overton window let's look again at this past election from a couple weeks ago I'm recording this November 2020 what opinions might we have about the election Probably the most acceptable opinion in my circle is that Joe Biden won quite handily fair and square, and that Donald Trump is throwing a fit, claiming cheating or something, but that his uh, his reasoning is unfounded. That would be like a, a really safe opinion to hold. Perhaps if you're more right-wing, you might think, well, we don't know if... The election was fair we have to do all of the due diligence to investigate that it's it's viable to um, pursue it legally and to question certain results because if there was foul play let's find it to the right of that perhaps less within the overton window you might have this uh, more insouciant reaction big word here this like kind of hissy fit that the votes should stop being counted, that it must be stopped. I would say that that's a little crazier, like toward the extreme of the Overton window. To believe that is laughable from a uh, leftist perspective, but within some reason, I suppose, from a right-wing perspective. And then finally, well outside the Overton window, on the right, you might have a belief like Donald Trump is our totalitarian master and to even have an election in the first place undermines our political system and this whole process is a sham he should just stay in office and similarly on the other side like maybe donald trump has never been my president's and the fact that we even have to have an election is a farce because obviously he has to be taken out those would be ideas that are so extreme and fringe that they're outside the overton window and if you were at a cocktail party and you were talking with somebody that said one of those things, you would think, okay, this person is not worth listening to. I'm going to walk away. Okay, back to big tech. They know, they in quotes, I guess, (laughs) that all this is in play they understand all this stuff and they also feel for some reason a responsibility to control some of this not to just give us the information that's out there to set up algorithms that present us information uh objectively they control it somehow so i want to like show you this kind of example if i use google the brand on my browser and i type in something like election fraud i see top stories Trump fires Director of U.S. Cybersecurity from The Guardian. I see three Guardian articles. Uh, Then I see videos. Um, Dominion confirms Clinton donation, breaking voter fraud. I see various things from YouTube. And then my actual searches. I see whitehouse.gov, hit one. NewYorkTimes.com, hit two. Wikipedia.org, hit three. DW, that's Deutsche Welle, hit four. And... Then I want to compare that to a perhaps less biased search engine like DuckDuckGo. So, this is not Google, but this is a search engine. If I type in the same thing, election fraud, I see recent news from ABC, Washington Post, and Arizona Republic. Those are the first hits. Then, the actual hits, um, outside of this, like, you know, news intro result, I see. Reports of election fraud are piling up in Michigan from thefederalist.com. That's hit one. If there's fraud in the 2020 election, then we must find it. That's hit two from the New York Post. Joe Biden boasts of most extensive voter fraud. That's hit three, also from the Federalist. Evidence of voter fraud from ideas and data is hit four. I find that very interesting that you get different results based on what search engine you use. And this ties back to we heard in the trailer for the social dilemma depending on who you are and where you are what you find on the internet will change so in this example that's very interesting that google prioritizes the new york times whitehouse.gov which are reputable we all know the sound of those i didn't even know that uh, the federalist papers was a thing but DuckDuckGo shows that at number one and it makes me suspect that their algorithm is different they actually might be prioritizing the most visited sites. And even though New York Times is more mainstream, it might be less visited on the topic of election fraud. And for some reason, Google as a brand is deprioritizing Federalist Papers and prioritizing New York Times. And that gives me a false sense of the world. It makes me think that everyone looks at New York Times, whereas a less biased report might be that actually... More people online check out the Federalist Papers on the topic of voter fraud. Another example of that will be like on Google Maps. If you're from India and you look up Kashmir, you'll see borders that favor India. If you're Chinese and you look up Kashmir, the state between India, China, and Pakistan, you'll see different results. So my point here is that big tech, like Google, is tailoring... Truth to you based on who and where you are. And even more specifically, Facebook is tailoring a news feed and a media diet to you very specifically. So along with your friends' posts about their new baby or something like that, you will see something like Joe Biden stole the election, here's proof, if you live in Kentucky and you voted for Trump. Or you'll see... Donald Trump's lawyers quitting uh, Trump having no ground to stand on, if you, say, live in Seattle. And this is a problem because we don't know what real truth is anymore. And someone from Seattle and someone from Kentucky don't know how to talk to each other because their media diets are so vastly different. And more importantly, their narratives are so vastly different. I think it's okay to have different opinions on any topic, Uh, you know, with election stuff. You can agree or disagree that the Electoral College is a good idea. You can admit facts like Wyoming is way smaller than California and is represented disproportionately higher in government as a result of our system. That's a fact, but you can still support the system if you believe that Wyoming farmers or something deserve representation to that extent. You can have that belief and we can disagree and that's okay. But to jump to your thesis, your argument while ignoring all the supporting evidence is bad faith debate. We have to at least admit the truth and that's just getting harder and harder these days. I want to pivot back to the social dilemma and focus now more on our individual psyches and how we're interpreting the world. Um, I think the reason we have such a difficult time talking together about controversial topics, difficult topics is that we've become so coddled for our own opinion that it's the only opinion worth having and that any um, disagreement is a threat, not only to our belief, but to our existence in a way like this is the kind of language that people are using now. So I want to turn back to the trailer of The Social Dilemma and hear this side of it. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up,
1: and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were
0: able to (laughs) affect... Real world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. Everyone's entitled to their own facts. There's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. We have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. I kind of wanted to stop that in the middle because they're mixing together these two concepts just as I am. There is the social, the broad social implications of you know, not seeing eye to eye, not agreeing on a truth. And then there's the more personal ramifications of our own egos being stroked, our own reality being our comfortable bubble that we live in. And uh, I want to just talk about that a little bit. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is the preeminent expert on this topic. In my opinion, he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. He also wrote one of my favorite books of all time called The Righteous Mind, which explores our differences in moral thinking. And what he's discovered with help of his Um, colleagues is that this new generation generation z in particular but also millennials and others we are being coddled in a really unhelpful way like our truth is so precious to hold on to that other opinions are uh, dangerous and threatening that those opinions have to be deplatformed canceled trigger warnings we have to have safe spaces to avoid these kind of um, antagonistic uh, beliefs and we're just coddling ourselves we're pretending that the world is this nice safe um, you know cushy friendly place and that's just not necessarily true is it and the danger there is that we're not setting people up for the real world first of all we are even worse in my opinion distorting the real world. We're allowing this kind of academic university mindset of coddling its customers, students being paying customers. And we're bringing that into the working environment, into the corporate structure, into HR companies. We're setting up, you know, these, these administrations within businesses that police people's online behavior, that police what people say online and in their social media And we're making the world more dangerous, more difficult to have opinions, more difficult to have conversations. Uh, We're making it so that we have to protect the most vulnerable, sensitive people within our society. And that's damaging for the sensitive people because you don't overcome psychological stress by ignoring it. You have to face it. That's like obvious to anyone that's gone into therapy. You have to face it. And two, it's dangerous for the people that have differing opinions, like me even as a contrarian, to have an opinion that, for instance, coronavirus might be blown out of proportion or to have an opinion that, say, Black Lives Matter might not have the moral ground, might not be even justified as a movement. Now, that's a really difficult opinion for someone like me to have in my social network, I've done podcasts about that topic and I want to explore a little more here because it's so crucial in um, understanding all of this. I'm going to play another clip from The Great Hack. And again, this is about psyops. This is about our minds being affected by what we read on social media. The way in which narratives are constructed and the way in which we put our emotions and our politics into these kind of ideas.
1: It sounds like quite apocalyptic, but it does feel like we are entering into a whole new era. We can see that authoritarian governments are on the rise and they are all using these politics of hate and fear on Facebook at Brazil. There's this right-wing extremist who's been elected. And we know that WhatsApp, which is part of Facebook, was really clearly implicated in the dissemination of fake news there. And look at what happened in Myanmar. There is evidence that Facebook was used to incite racial hatred, which caused a genocide. Know that the Russian government was using Facebook's tools in the US. There's evidence that Russian intelligence created fake Black Lives Matter memes. And when people clicked on them, they were taken to pages where they were actually invited to protests that were organized by the Russian government. At the same time, they were setting up pages targeting adversary groups like Blue Lives Matter. It's about stoking fear and hate to turn the country against itself. Divide and conquer.
0: Okay, so that's an expert saying a lot of things. Uh, I think most of us understand that there are evils in the world, like genocides and stuff, and that... These kind of things are being stoked, or perhaps we don't understand yet, but we need to understand that these things are being stoked by what we share and what we see on social media. Put simply, belief matters. Beliefs matter, and beliefs lead to action. And it's really important, the fight for hearts and minds and what we're each believing in. It's easier to become radicalized, right? Right? In my case it might be easier to become red pilled, which is a phenomenon of taking a pill in quotes and seeing the truth on any given topic, whether it be um you know, the the gender wage gap or black lives matter. Any controversial political topic, if you study it, if you peel back the layers, you'll find depth there. You'll find A more nuanced discussion than what you actually are seeing online. My problem is that when I talk with people, it's often the case that people don't want to go very deep; that they want to stay with their superficial um, slogans, their obvious basic beliefs. That we should be fighting for equality, for instance, but they'll use very bad supporting evidence, like in the case of Black Lives Matter. You know that trailer that I or that clip that I just. Had you listened to that? I was watching. It shows these Facebook memes of equating, let's say, a police officer with a Ku Klux Klan member, as if all police officers are racists, which is a meme going around most people that uh, fight for justice for George Floyd's death in Minneapolis in June. A lot. It's a very common belief that. Racist Cops Killed George Floyd. Now, just as a quick side note, I've done some recent research on that topic. The toxicology report came in on George Floyd, as well as the audio evidence from the, uh, the from the encounter. George Floyd was coronavirus positive. I don't know if you knew that. He died of uh, complications internally, including his lungs, and he had coronavirus. He also had fentanyl. In his blood system, which is a very dangerous drug. Um, a very minute amount of fentanyl is known to kill a lot of people, and he had even more than that. He had He basically died of a fentanyl overdose. That's what the coroner has reported. Of course, there is a New York Times opinion piece saying, the idea that drugs played a role is just a new version of an old racist myth. So just the fact that I'm pointing out that he had excessive fentanyl in his bloodstream is racist. I'm not even allowed to say that without being accused of being racist. And yet it is a fact that fentanyl is in his blood, that fentanyl is really dangerous, and that his fentanyl amount was higher than people who have actually overdosed to death on fentanyl. But if you want to believe that racism is literally the explanation, you could ignore the evidence I'm presenting you. He died At the hospital. I don't know if people know that. He did not die on the street with uh, Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck. Um, That footage is still quite horrific. Um, But now there's audio evidence of George Floyd asking to lay down on the ground. He didn't want to be in the police car. He wanted to be on the ground, which is why he was on the ground. So you have all these complications to that narrative. There's deeper truth that most people aren't aware of. It's just easier for most people to just accept the narrative that American cops are racist, that there is this open uh, warfare against the black community in America by white supremacy, and that we have to fight it by any means necessary in the streets rioting. And what you don't know is that Russians have taught you to think that. (laughs) The very, like memes and news stories and snippets of reality are being spun to control your mindset to put you in this us them dichotomy you are fighting you're fighting a boogeyman this is a a false narrative this is a divisive narrative that comes up during election cycles the last time black lives matter was a big deal was 2016 before hillary clinton lost to trump there's evidence i just want to make that clear that Black Lives Matter is a psychological operation. And it's important to understand that and to question our own beliefs on this topic. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to care about racial justice or that police brutality isn't a problem. Those things still stand. And I support fighting those things. But I think we can fight them a little less intensely. We don't need to be so aggressive because the enemies are not as big as we think they are. It's an objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear phenomenon. The world is not full of neo-Nazis. The world is not full of, on the other side, Antifa radicals killing people in the streets. It does exist, and the media has a bias, depending on the media you're consuming, to slant it. But the point is that these things are complicated. And the problem is that In our own little safe cocoons, we're not being exposed to those nuances. We're being sold narratives and news that support our belief systems. And my challenge to you is to get out of that, to break your own bubble, to diversify your media diet, to be skeptical of what you're reading, to investigate on your own the information that you're seeing every single day. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Big topic here. Hopefully this was somewhat helpful to think through together. My name is Keith. I'm on Patreon at Keith Telfan and Instagram at Keith Pictures and Twitter. If you look at my name, Um, I appreciate any support or interaction, any dialogue. Send me a message on Gmail or anywhere else you can find me. And... Until next time, ciao.